0: A number of years ago, I was working at Starbucks after completing my master's uh, degree, and uh, I had one of those moments where uh, it was a lazy moment on the job. I have pretty high work ethic, uh, I like to think, and I had very high work ethic working on the job, but it was one of those moments where laziness just overtook me, I guess. I'll take credit, I just didn't do the job. A woman came up, she purchased a travel mug, that she had just taken off the shelf. I rung up the travel mug. She said, I'd like to purchase some coffee in the travel mug. I rung that up as well. I turned around to fill the travel mug, put the lid on, handed it to her, and she said, did you rinse it out? I would have wanted it rinsed out. I knew that's what she would probably want as well. And yet, for some reason, to shave 10 seconds off the whole transaction, I didn't. I didn't. And so I said, no, I didn't. I turned around. You know, she asked me to do it. I fixed the problem. I apologized to her, and I felt bad. Why did I feel bad? Because I have a conscience. That's why I felt bad. I had done something wrong. I felt convicted about it. My conscience told me so. The woman did not necessarily respect the integrity of my confession. It was nice to have somebody say, I'm sorry, right? But I had done something wrong. Let's just face it. It was small. It was minor, but it was wrong. And we have a conscience, we have to recognize that. If we're gonna live with integrity, what that means is, what's going on in the inside, the conscience that tells us what is right and wrong, needs to be lined up with our action on the outside. Those need to work in sync, and that really is what amounts to integrity. And the truth of the matter is, we all have a conscience. It might be a little suppressed in some rather than others. It's broken by the fall, as we'll define it in just a moment. But we all have a conscience, something that tells us what right and wrong actually is. And we should recognize that when we experience something that goes wrong, that's morally wrong or ethically wrong or unjust, we tend to feel it. We feel like something is not right. But feelings, let's just let's just call them what they are, they're kind of like on the very edge of our human experience. We live in a culture swimming in feelings and we make a lot of permanent decisions based on temporary feelings, which is the wrong way to operate. Because we're not even getting to the point where we're uh, actually assessing those feelings as what emotion they are sometimes. We're just living by the feelings that we have. I like this feeling, I don't like this feeling, but when we encounter something that's wrong, we can feel that it's wrong. More to the point though, We often know it, don't we? We don't just feel it. We know when something is wrong. It's really, if you look at the title of the sermon, you can kind of sense it the way we often say in your gut, rather than just following the desires of your heart when you know something's wrong. As we're in this sermon series right now, we're talking about prophet, shepherd, king, different roles and identities that Jesus had, and Today if you're looking for which one of those gets assigned to Jesus It's clearly the king category the text we just heard uh, From the book of mark is going to be our text this morning mark 6. I encourage you to find it. We'll get there in just a moment But Jesus is barely mentioned in that text if you heard it He's he's in the background of the whole thing as king But he's over all of that that's going on He's he's in Herod's head by this point. That's why he's really the point of the text as it goes on. And today we'll see a contrast in conscience, in integrity, and in truth between the characters of John the Baptist and Herod, and Herod's actions towards John and his fear of Jesus. Both of those guys, Herod and John, had a conscience, but if you recognize, only one of them had integrity. And so the point that we can kind of put over everything we're going to do today, is that to live with integrity, you must be who God has created you to be. That is, you must be a person with a conscience accountable to God. You've got to recognize that that is who you're accountable to for what is right and wrong and your actions in this life. Now, if we look at the character of John the Baptist, uh, we can see that here you have somebody who's a prophet, Jesus flags for us that John the Baptist is Elijah come back. We heard a a very key story from Elijah's life today from 1 Kings where Jezebel wanted to kill him and he's hiding out in fear, even though he's been obedient and faithful to what God called him to do. Jesus tells us, well, now John the Baptist is Elijah returned. Everybody was waiting for Elijah to come back to point to the Messiah that was to come. John did that. John was on about pointing towards the Messiah. And written in his name, John the Baptist, or the baptizer, that's what he did. He went to the Jordan River. He called Israel, these people who were called by God to show and reveal to the world who God is, and to call God in, or call the people in, to God's presence. He told Israel, the Messiah is coming, you need to prepare. And it was a shocking message. He's basically saying, you're unclean, and you need to be clean. you chosen people that think you're holy. You're not as holy as you think you are. Prepare for what is to come in the Messiah. And so he comes with this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If we look at the issue of repentance, this is key to what John is bringing and the preparation. Repentance is that we recognize our guilt, that we've done something wrong and we have that prick of conscience within us. We know something's wrong. We can feel it, but we know it. And repentance says, this is step one, I recognize that something's wrong, And step two is to turn. It's to turn away. So if we need to repent, it means by uh, definition we're walking in the opposite direction of God. And we turn, after we recognize that, and walk towards God. That's what we're doing in repentance. Two separate actions. And then the forgiveness part that's put on top of that is you need to repent in order to actually prepare the way for forgiveness, which John isn't able to do. But what that does is it cleanses, it sets you right with God relationally. But let's just point out it doesn't take away the guilt. That guilt actually can have an important function as it sits with us to say, perhaps you should never do this again, so you don't have to go through this again. John can't forgive. He points to the one who can. That's what he's saying you need to prepare for in this act of repentance, in this sort of symbolic cleansing in the Jordan River that you see your need for forgiveness and recognize that forgiveness is on the way. That's what John is doing. Let's go to our text in Mark 6, 14 through 16. It will be on the screen. As I said, I encourage you to follow along. Phones or physical Bibles, either one is fine. Whatever you got this morning. Starting at verse 14, we heard it this morning. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Jesus had already been going around the countryside healing And releasing people from demon oppression. He'd been showing the signs of the kingdom. He had sent out his 12 disciples to do the same, and they had been successful in their journey out when he sent them. The text goes on. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. It's interesting to consider as we look at the fear that Herod has here before we get the backstory. John was obedient to his call. John knew his role, he followed through his role, he was killed for his role, and even in death, his integrity, his message, and his obedience still had power and authority. Over Herod. Isn't that remarkable? Sometimes in our own modern age, people will will hearken to, well, Reverend Dr. King says, and people stop and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Same kind of thing here. But look at John's character It, it instilled fear in Herod. Let's talk a little more about a conscience then, because that's clearly at play in all of this as it leads towards integrity of character. A definition that I think is very useful from uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary, a very fine resource, says that conscience is that faculty of the mind or inborn sense of right and wrong by which we judge the moral character of human conduct. It is common to all. You have it, I have it. Like all other faculties, it has been perverted by the fall. That is to say, we have a pretty good conscience, but in some of us, it's been a little bit more cracked than others. And you see in Herod and John, as you think of what a conscience is, and it's brought up uh, with Herod, uh, that you see a contrast between these two guys in what God promises and the short-sighted reality we often settle for that's not God's promise. And so our conscience is an important thing because it can tell us uh, it can only be measured against that which is true when you get down to it. I think it's a God-given thing that we have a conscience But it only makes sense when compared to God and God's character. It makes no sense when you separate it out. Let me give you an example. Uh, My son just turned six, my youngest. uh, But back when he was five, uh, not so long ago, just a couple months ago, he was at my parents' house playing trains. I picked him up, brought him home. He gets his trains out at home, and he says, Dad, I want to make a train set. Can I have a piece of cardboard? I said, sure. How big do you want that piece of cardboard? And he said, um, 10? That's not a very helpful moment, right? What's the natural next question we want to ask? 10 of what? Right? This is a great, I mean, he was very serious about the, the answer, but 10 of what? Do you want 10 inches, 10 feet? What, how much cardboard are we talking about here? Because we got it, you know, it needed to be cut up in the basement. I just delayed on that, but the, the point is, is there, though, that our conscience is God-given, and it can only be understood when measured against the truth. We have to have some kind of rationale by which it makes sense. Otherwise, it's arbitrary. Otherwise, we can make up whatever we want and call it our conscience and say that is the truth, but that's not the case. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was famous for saying something to the effect of—about uh, freedom. Uh, as long as you don't pick my pocket or break my leg, you can do what you want, basically, on your property. That is essentially freedom. I don't want to misrepresent it, but the basic idea is there. It's um, a concept that we kind of sometimes live into and live out of within our country ever since. Uh, But that's completely arbitrary in many ways. If there's no God to compare it to, if there's no standard by which we compare it to, then why would it matter if I break your leg or pick your pocket? There needs to be some standard of truth. Otherwise, frankly, I should do those things because it will bring me happiness or fulfillment or success or prosperity or whatever it is I want because there's nothing that we're accountable to in the end. There has to be something we're accountable to for the conscience to make sense. And I want to point out, Jesus comes as the king bringing God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is of truth. We should recognize that. And we begin to realize that reality... When our conscience is lived and it's in, and in its full integrity, when the actions on the outside reveal the truth that's inside, and when those things line up with truth as it comes from God and God alone. That's the only way that integrity will work. That's the only way our conscience can be fully uh, in, in play and at work, and that our actions can work with that. We need to be lined up against God's truth. So let's go on in the text because I think then understanding that and seeing the conscience-stricken Herod at work, we can get a portrait of what the kingdom is not and what the kingdom is when Jesus comes. Go to verse 17 of chapter 6. It says, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Incidentally, it's a little more complicated in the family tree than what you're getting here, but Mark's giving us the Cliff's Notes version of what went down. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod is a man who lived in a world of delusion in many ways. And we can see from him this King Herod, as Mark calls him. Uh, Both Matthew and Luke refer to him as a tetrarch, because that's what he was. He wasn't actually a king at all. Um, He called himself that. We see in him a conscience that is self-defined. He's trying to make up his own rules and his own truth, and it really becomes then a parody of truth. It becomes a false reality that he lives and lives into. Herod is a pleasure seeker. He's a power seeker, but he also has a conscience that's quite stricken with his own actions. And he has to keep trying to cover up those actions as he keeps going forward to maintain that power and that authority and that pleasure. So he calls himself king. It's a false title. His dad, Herod the Great, ruled that whole region of what we call Palestine. Herod, it was divided among the sons uh, when Herod died, and Herod, this Herod, is just one of those sons who gets a smaller portion of the land. He's not a king. He's under the rule of Caesar in Rome. He's just a tetrarch, but he he wants everybody else to walk into that delusion with him. I'm a king. You call me king, and it seems uh, obvious to me that Mark uses the title... One, he's given you a historical record. Herod thought he was a king. And two, he's pitting it against the story of Jesus and saying, but who's the real king here? It's not Herod. It's the guy he's terrified of. He, in this moment where he has Herodias' daughter, who comes down to us in history as the name Salome, um, when he has Herodias' daughter dance before him, He does what ancient kings would do. They'd say, you can have up to half my kingdom, because what you did was so wonderful, which is an idiom. It's just a way of saying, shoot the moon with your request. right? He's not really going to give half of his kingdom. Uh, And frankly, he doesn't have the authority to give any of his kingdom, because it's not his to give. right? He might be able to give political favor, but he's offering something that's not his to give. He's living by a title that's not real. It's a total delusion. And he steals what he wants to steal and takes what he wants to take in order to make himself happy because he's so hungry for power, he'll do whatever it takes to keep it. So when he even takes Herodias as his wife, we know this from the ancient uh, Jewish source Josephus, he actually is dumping another wife in order to do that, who's the, the daughter of another king somewhere. And Herodias even lowers herself because... It's hard to pick out all the things that are wrong that Herod and Herodias do in this text and comment on all of them. We just can't. But when she has her daughter dance, I wouldn't condone any of that, but she has somebody of high class do something somebody only of lower class would do so she can achieve her own ends. They're just pushing the limit all the way around to make sure that they can just justify their own desires that aren't right, and they can tell that they're not right. And just as an aside... To complete the picture, what we don't get here that Josephus, that ancient uh, historian, tells us, uh, Herod ends up paying a price for taking Herodias as his wife and dumping the other wife because the dad of that other wife comes and attacks him, and Herodias, or Herod loses badly shortly after all this. And it was reported that most of the Jewish population felt this was judgment from God on Herod for all the things he had done. You can see with Herod what the kingdom is not. You can't just make up your own rules. And Herod feels the conscience uh, heavy on himself, knowing he's wrong. What you see by contrast in John and, and Jesus behind that is that the kingdom of God is then a conscience under the power of God and God's will and God's ways. John and Jesus terrified Herod, whether directly or indirectly. When John speaks to Jesus or speaks to Herod, or when Jesus is just operating as a rival ruler or a rival authority around, it spoke into Herod's life, either directly or indirectly, that he was wrong, that he was not doing what was right, and he couldn't handle that. And that's really the function of a conscience, isn't it? The function of a conscience is we have one because God gave us, and it's there to tell us what's true and what's not. What's good and what's bad? What's right and what's wrong? And yeah, it is a little bit cracked by the fall. But generally speaking, we kind of have a clue, don't we? And the more we get to know God and who God is and the kingdom Jesus is bringing, the more we can bring that conscience under the rule of Jesus Christ. So we live out with integrity what right and wrong are because judgment comes to all. It came to Herod and it comes to John. It comes to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Those living under their own conscience will be judged as those who are living under a conscience ruled by God. As Paul talks about in Romans uh, 2, starting at verse 12, he says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Everybody's going to die, everybody's going to have some moment of judgment. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. You see, we lack uh, integrity when we ignore the reality of our conscience lined up against the one to whom we're accountable. And we do that at our own peril. I have a, a great love of early Christian monks. Here's one of the most famous ones, Abba Anthony, a story from the desert in the 300s. It says, The monks praised a brother to Abba Anthony, But Anthony went to him and tested whether he could endure abuse. And when he perceived that he could not bear it, he said, you are like a house with a highly decorated facade where burglars have stolen all the furniture out the back door. That seems to describe Herod pretty well, doesn't it? Where the conscience is not in sync with the actions. You look good. There's no integrity. There's no character. There's no virtue in there. I want to give a a couple parting thoughts on this. I'm going to invite the band to come up as I do that and get in place, but I want to give a couple parting thoughts here. We made the point, uh, the sort of umbrella point for all of us, that to live with integrity, you must be who God has created you to be. That is a person with a conscience that's accountable to God. It makes no sense if it's not accountable to God. If it's only accountable to you or me, then we can do whatever we want. It's not accountable to anybody else, but we're ignoring truth on his face. We're like... The highly decorated facade where burglars have taken the furniture out the back door. Through Jesus, uh, God is calling all people, you and me, into his kingdom and kingdom life even now. And practically speaking, what that means is the conscience that we have needs to be lined up a little bit better and in training to be a part of that kingdom. It matters that we have virtue, it matters that we have good character, it matters that we have morality and goodness. And those things instilled in us, because that's who God is. That's who we're supposed to be. And so I want to give you just two thoughts, sort of tips on getting your conscience in line uh, with God's ways. The first is, I would suggest actually you continue to study the character of John the Baptist. Jesus commends John in a rather marvelous way as one of the great men to ever live. And, and there's something to that. And I don't just say that because we're talking about John. I mean, really, look at how he interacts with his world. Elijah, who we saw uh, in 1 Kings, did, was obedient but was terrified when Jezebel came after him. John the Baptist seems to just keep going full force in and speaking the truth where it needs to be spoken. And he was not spared of difficulty in his obedience, was he? But he endured it. He continued on. He lived into the truth and frankly, we respect that. If we were to pick out who we wanted to be versus John or Herod in this text, I hope you want to be John. I think he has a character worth studying. And I don't think he spoke, and I told you so's to uh, Herod. That's important to recognize. Um, And I think that when we encounter John the Baptist's On the other side, not just being one, but when you encounter those people who can speak into our lives, we need to have the humility and depth of character that we can hear when we need to be corrected too. So we could be John, we can also receive from John, the Baptists around us. The other thing I would suggest is we talked about conscience from the beginning, and I said sometimes we can feel when things are wrong, but we really know quite often when things are wrong, uh, more often than even sometimes we'll admit Can I just give you a challenge that in our feelings-based culture, start your sentences with I think rather than I feel? Because that might actually drive you to the reason why much more than just making decisions based on feelings alone. I think that's the case. Try that instead of I feel like the text is saying, say I think the text is saying. I think God is calling me to rather than I feel. I think even the mental shift can help us bring our conscience in line with who God has called us to be. Let's take time to pray right now. Will you join with me? Thank you, God, for your kingdom and your kingdom rule. Thank you for instilling in us uh, the ability to recognize when things are completely off track from who you are. Thank you for putting your image in us, and thank you, as we sang this morning, for redeeming us, Help us heed the words of preparation from John that we would repent, that we would turn and and recognize the prick of conscience on us when things are wrong in our lives and turn from ways which stand against you. God, heal our rebellious hearts. Put together our feeling-only lifestyle that we would think forward, not just feel our way forward. Give us decisions decisions, uh, that desire your truth rather than standing opposed to your truth. Help us turn from anything in opposition to you. God, help us live for what is right and good and true and noble and praiseworthy. And Father, where we need it, grant us forgiveness. John couldn't do it. Only your son Jesus can. Give us that forgiveness. Cleanse us from our sins and our wayward hearts. Father, help us also to speak the truth boldly when we need to, that we can draw others towards who you've called them to be, towards a conscience accountable to you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.